Hi everyone, and welcome to And the Podcast of Wisdom, a librarian's TV show podcast. We're turning an enthusiastic but critical eye to the librarians for the purpose of amusement, entertainment, and inspiration. I'm Matt Kavnar-Johnson, environmentalist and comedy scholar. I'm mythology nerd and wannabe mathematician Sam Kavnar-Johnson. And I'm Aria Brennan, social worker and fantasy TV geek. so far, based on the entirety of season one and talking about all the little things that didn't quite make it into any particular episode, but that we wanted to talk about. We also want to kind of give a review of the first season altogether. So this is the place for our thoughts. I'm going to be kind of starting and then Sam and Matt will both be going through their perspectives and their questions, all of the unanswered pieces and untied threads as we go. (laughs) Untied threads. Oh dear. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. So my biggest point, I guess, for the whole season is just looking at each of the main characters, the recurring characters, and looking at their development, what we think of their story, how it works for us, what doesn't work, and just sort of looking at them in review so we can get ready for season two. I also wanted to talk a little bit about the character names and whether we think that they mean anything. As a person who came up with my own name, and I obviously think names are very important, and I think that in this show, they're very deliberately chosen, but I'm not quite sure what they were going for with for all of them, so I think it'll be interesting to talk about it as a group. Let's get started with Colonel Baird, our team leader, since we see her first. What do we think of Colonel Baird's arc? So, I feel like, at least from my perspective, I watch a lot of, and consume a lot of superhero media. I feel like mm-hmm. Baird has a very classical superhero arc of kind of being thrust into the, like, unknown supernatural etc and then becoming a hero who kind of accepts that i think that's best shown in the contracts between the season finale and the opener while she is kind of a heroic person in the pilot she doesn't really accept what's going like the the strange things going around by the end she's become part of who she is yeah i think the best way to describe it is that she goes from being a hero to being a superhero do you have anything to add on her sam it's interesting because she has a lot of mini arcs in individual episodes like individual Mm -hmm. lessons to learn and i didn't really get the impression that they formed a really cohesive or maybe they just weren't super obvious about it but they didn't seem to form a cohesive narrative like it wasn't as blatant as uh, some other like personal character arts for example of course i'm gonna mention doctor who the 12th doctor is like oh am i a good person arc are you gonna fill us in if we don't know what that was, or it's literally like every ep- every episode the doctor has the has this moment where he just sits down and asks himself or Clara, "Hey, am I a good person?" This is like season eight mostly. Yeah, we we definitely don't have anything quite that overt. I would kind of say that there is kind of a clear idea, at least kind of going back to the super idea, superhero idea, kind of accepting her role as kind of this supernatural hero while also kind of becoming a member of a team in a way that's different from how she's just led like led by military order by like command she gets more to kind of almost to the classical like superhero team up type thing that you might see in a show like the defenders or mm-hmm. i guess the avengers is more of a movie you know has a lot of stuff going on in that movie but a kind of a similar idea right and i think in some ways the lesson is how to be in a team without a hierarchy without the strict rules the magic in general in the librarians verse works in a very fluid way it's it's not science but different you know it's not like you do the same thing and you get the same results every time controlling for other conditions it can be very unpredictable it can be wild it can sort of have a spirit and intentionality of its own it sort of seems like there's such concepts as fate and so it's a world where rules, hierarchy, and order kind of break down. And so somebody from a very hierarchical team-based structure that works very much on the practical, I think that's that's a big transition for Baird over the course of season one. And we can also talk about names. For Baird, I think they straight up explain it in the Christmas episode. Mm-hmm. She was named, at least in-universe, because she was born on Christmas Eve, hence the name Eve Baird. Right. 
I find it really interesting, though, and I don't know whether there's anything to make of it. I mean, for one, it's a very feminine name. Two, she doesn't let people call her that, except in the alternate universe where, importantly, Jacob Stone does call her that, which I find interesting. And occasionally Flynn, I think, calls her Eve, right? Yeah, yeah. And she she allows that. So I find that interesting. Maybe we should have a wrap-up conversation about gender, although I don't know if there's anything more to say because we bang that out every single episode. We've got something to say about it. But I also think it's interesting considering that everybody in the main cast has a mythical or biblical name. I was kind of thinking about bringing up names at the end because of that, because I think the names are in a way sort of of a piece. And, of course, Eve is an extremely well-known biblical character. She isn't really a a temptress. She doesn't, like, press anybody to stray off the straight and narrow or anything like that. She's not, like, a, a corrupter as a character. So I don't know whether there's something intended that hasn't happened yet or whether there's something that I'm not seeing or whether that's not what they meant to evoke at all. And it was really not an allusion to Eve of Adam and Eve fame. I don't know if you guys thought anything about that. From my brief etymological search, the Eve as in Christmas Eve, right, comes from, like, Old English. It basically comes from evening. It's in a contraction, which, like, derives from Old English. Mm-hmm. So that use of the word Eve, which is in-universe her name, is doesn't co- doesn't derive from biblical Eve, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes sense. So it's it's sort of like, oh, what's that girl's name from Divergent? Oh, uh, Beatrice Pryor. Her last name is Pryor, which is like very weighted with the idea of like before and preceding. So perhaps Eve is also like some kind of reference to the idea of, of before, of when something has not yet occurred, the moment before transformation. I wonder if there's anything in that. Maybe that's something we should watch as we go through the series because i think you might be onto something with that i think that might be what they're going for more so than the biblical illusion well what that makes me think of is that the idea of like priority or like becoming before is in the sense that a lot of the time she seems to represent the more mundane world she's like oh that doesn't make sense or she's like mocking some of the magical stuff mm-hmm. she's one of the more grounded in reality characters right but at the same time i believe in this universe magic was once strong and then sort of went away so it's actually sort of the mystical that was first well but for the characters yeah yeah, you know the normal world came first yeah before they were introduced to this and then things changed yeah i think i think that's interesting and we can keep an eye on it and see if there's more that comes to us as time goes on all right are we good with good with that one assuming we don't want to go into a weird rabbit hole about trying to argue the library is a metaphor for the garden of eden then i, think I don't want to do that <laughs> i don't want to do that at all okay so moving right along let's talk about jacob stone he doesn't have a giant arc i think possibly out of everybody colonel baird might have the greatest season long arc i think jacob stone's arc is very quiet and sort of background we see him we get to know him more i think is the main thing that happens and we get to know somebody who has lived a very long time. I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to be rude, but like he's, he's lived a life before all this and yet he's retained his sense of wonder, joy, and whimsy and has this great sense of, of respect and awe for the metaphysical and never gets bored of what he does and kind of has something of a hero's spirit. But he's also kind of a loner and doesn't really like want to trust people. I don't know, like he's not necessarily an open book, despite being open to magic and mysticism. Does anybody want to talk about him? I feel like his trust issues haven't been really resolved. No, they have not. They're just coasting along. It's interesting because, you know, lifelong trust issues aren't the sort of thing that go away super quickly. Mm -hmm. I like that they didn't feel the need to wrap every character arc neatly at the end, even if it is kind of unsatisfying. Yeah, there's definitely some realism to that, and I think that there's more that they wanted to do with him that they didn't really get the opportunity to, so they're like, they're they're leaving it on the table, which is good. I think we'll have more to say about him at the end of season two. Yeah, I was particularly going to say, I, thought, I think the season primarily did a good job of kind of setting his character up for mm-hmm. later to him, as I think we've kind of flagged stone's character arc as something that 
at least really relate to. Yes. But it's hard kind of at this point to fully explain how we feel about Stone's character arc until we get to the later seasons. I mean, we've only got a couple episodes more before we get there. It's like the third or fourth episode that we're talking about. So I pretty mean, soon we won't have to keep alluding to it. We'll be able to talk about it properly. Yeah. I feel like our Which is very exciting. librarians deserve an explanation for the character why we ha- aren't saying more about a character arc we've flagged previously as something we want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I do think that we've gotten a little bit, particularly in the alternate timeline, we got a little bit of how things could be for him. It's It sounds like he, in this alternate timeline, perhaps had some different experiences and never got to be this way, or, or perhaps given time and space, was able to work through some of his hang-ups that he's got and have a deeply satisfying interpersonal relationship with the other Colonel Baird, who we don't know because she was in the alternate timeline and we didn't get to see that version of her. But, you know, I think that's that's kind of an optimistic note to head into season two on. When it comes to the character name, so Jacob is obviously another biblical name, although there's a lot of famous Jacobs, so I don't know. I did read through the disambiguation page for a while to try to figure this one out, and then I gave up after a while and talked to our dad, who is really into the Bible. So we talked for a long time, and his first reaction, which I shared, was that really it would have made a lot more sense if the character of Jacob Stone and Ezekiel Jones had their first name switched. I mean, Ezekiel is the perfect name for Ezekiel Jones. It's it's like just weird enough to be perfect. But in terms of the illusion, Jacob, at least of Jacob and Esau fame, is much more like Ezekiel Jones than he is like Jacob Stone. But I don't know if you guys had any commentary on that. Do we want to go into... I, I think I know which specific specifically which story would remind you more of ezekiel jones in jacob's story he can be a bit of a he's he was a bit of a trickster yeah yeah that's what i'm talking about how he like tricked his brother into giving away his birthright or whatever you know was kind of out for himself kind of thing you know he he put himself first yeah so that's kind of where i was going with that but i don't i couldn't really find anything particular except that jacob stone is just like a cool sounding name A, a lot of the names are just like very musical in this show like they just sound really good yeah, I think I think they did a good job coming up with solid character names. It is a little weird though because they're very like heavy names. Like they're not they don't seem random at all. Like they don't seem like names that were picked just because they sound nice. They seem like they allude to something. And I think that particularly for for Colonel Baird, the name Eve, that was very intentional. I don't know that Jacob Stone was supposed to refer to any living or dead, fictional or otherwise, Jacob. Sort of the case that all Jacobs kind of come back to the Jacob. The, the biblical one that I talked the, about earlier? Yeah. Or are you talking about somebody yeah, else? Yeah, okay. yeah, no, no. Okay. Yeah. I all say right. the because I, I haven't studied the Bible extensively yet, but I would imagine there might be more people named Jacob in the Bible, but... There's, there's quite a lot. But in any case, any anything else about him? Or are we ready to table this one for... Until next season. Well, this kind of bridges into Cassandra, but their con- the conflict between them never gets resolved. Yeah, it sure doesn't, which is like a weird choice, even though I get that they're not really ready to deal with it fully, and I think it's fine to kind of leave things on the back burner. But it's it's a weird choice, because it's not a particularly complex conflict. I was also going to point out, at least in this season, I'm not sure if they really, looking back on it, knew exactly what it, where they wanted to go with Stone yet. Because if you think about the episodes in which they tried to develop his character a lot, those are the episodes that tended to fall flat for us. I think we got a lot of him in Apple of Discord, and we liked that quite a lot. Yeah. But I was thinking of the Science Fair one and the episode formerly known as Tesla. Yeah. That were where they tried to give him some character development that didn't really work well for us. Yeah, that's true. And it's weird. I think part of the reason why we were just so dismissive out of hand is because they end up going a very different sort of direction in season two and it works better for us. Because now that I think about it, if you just look at this season... It's not so much trust issues so much as he's just, like, kind of a womanizer. Like, we get that from the beginning. Like, he's, like, flirting with the random girl in the bar when we meet him in the first place. Then he, like, is trying to pick up Mabel, the town's lady, in the Tesla episode. Are there- I feel like there's other examples. He's, like, flirty with Lamia. He gives the questionable advice to the goth kid. Right. 
That's what I was thinking of for that one. I was like, I knew there was something in that one too. Yeah. He gives questionable romantic advice that's like kind of disrespectful. Oh, he feels very entitled to the fairy tale episode wolf eaten ladies affections, but she only has eyes for Cassandra, which, you know, <laughs> of course. I mean, um, fair. I find it hilarious. What? Fair. Yeah, but yeah, so we've kind of seen him uh, with a little bit of like a sort of entitled, not like to a really egregious level, but he's he's definitely not much of a feminist, certainly, in these early episodes. He could tone the entitlement down. He could tone it down like a little bit. I mean, it's it's not like a horrible problem. I'm not saying that like the character of Jacob Stone is like an uh, unapologetic, misogynistic, uh, you know, sexist kind of character, but unlike Flynn, you know, it could be. Yeah, Flynn is just pretty irredeemable, but like he could turn it down, you know, ten, twenty percent, and I would be good with with him. You know, he could turn it down a little, and that'd be appreciated. And I think that that kind of goes away over time, and that's part of why we just sort of, I guess, gave him a little bit more of a pass. I mean, we don't really give anybody of a pass. We really don't like sexism, but we gave him a little more of a pass than, like, Flynn, who we would just not leave alone. And I think that's because over time we get to know a different side of this character, and he doesn't really continue to act this way, as far as I remember. Maybe I'll be surprised. And the only instances of Flynn we get, he spends like 50% of the time being misogynist, so... Right, it's also just the percentage of screen time where he is misogynist is much, much higher for Flynn. It's really a problem. But, alright, I think I think we can leave him here for now. I think he's a character who had a very quiet arc and will have a lot more to say next season. Let's talk about Cassandra. So, her name is a reference to the character from Greek mythology. I believe she's royalty from the city of Troy. I think she's the daughter of King Priam, but yes. she was given the gift of prophecy, but cursed so that no one would believe her. She was eventually captured and taken as a slave by Agamemnon, the leader of the Greek armies, and killed by Agamemnon's wife and her lover when Agamemnon returned home. Yeah, so it's interesting because she's not fully like on brand for characters named Cassandra. I mean, basically every TV show writer needs to have a precognitive character named Cassandra. Like, there's one on Buffy, there's, like, one on, like, basically every show that does this kind of mystical element. And she's not really fully into that. It'd be kind of weird to name her character Tiresias. (laughs) Well, yes. Maybe a little bit. But I think it still works a little bit in that she spends much of this season struggling with feeling distrusted and not fully trusting herself. We see that, I think, most explicitly in the Minotaur episode, where, you know, she talks about how she's... I don't. I think the word unreliable is actually the Haunted House episode, but she goes, like, on a whole thing about how people don't really trust her judgment, and she's like, oh, we should go this way in the labyrinth maze, and everyone's like, mm, I don't know. And there's, like, a lot of doubt as to whether she can do things. And I think she distrusts herself more than anybody else distrusts her after, like, the second episode. But it's definitely... Trust and mistrust are a big deal throughout her whole arc, I think. And I think Cassandra also kind of represents the more kind of the curse of knowledge kind of aspect of Mm -hmm. the, like, mythical Cassandra. Is that, in at least in the Greek tragedy Agamemnon, she knew she was going to die before it happened and she, like, spends the entire time, you know, telling the chorus, kind of the audience surrogate characters that, oh yeah, I'm gonna get killed, and Agamemnon's probably gonna die too, and like, no one believes her. I feel like- Yeah. And I think there's also a thing which I think the show has definitely been hinting at a more magical direction for Cassandra's character, seen in the fairy tale episodes and her alternate timeline. Right. So I think she has the power to be, she she seems to have more affinity to the actual magic power element of this kind of, this kind of world. So I, I think there's definitely a lot there. I think there will also be more to talk about for her next season as well. Yeah. I think, I think we're going to get some big, some big points in on this one. Which is kind of interesting because she's also, I feel, the character most associated with science and technology we see her enthusiasm at the stem fair for you know science and it's interesting that her enthusiasm for both science and magic don't seem to be contradictory for her yeah and i kind of love it a lot i love in general that they that the show felt very confident in making the 
female, like, math and physics geek, and, like, it's not all of her character, but it's a big part of her character, and it's not really apologized for, and it's just kind of allowed to be there. I think that sometimes when they're like, oh, let's write quote-unquote strong female characters, the characters aren't really allowed to be anything else, and I love that she is. I find that really a, a delight pretty much all the way through. Yeah, we get Eve, who I think is kind of more in the mold of your standard strong female character types but is at the same time allowed to be emotional i can't recall any times where she's sort of punished for being emotional which is which happens a lot yeah i i think that's true i think colonel beard works like a little less well for me because i think that we don't always get a full sense of her internality so we kind of just get her i don't know i guess maybe that's not true She's definitely not a character that I relate to as easily personally. And so I don't know if that's sort of just my only hang up is like, I was never going to be as captivated by her. Or if there's something about her characterization that doesn't quite sit well for me for some other reason. I'm not sure yet. I'll maybe we'll come back to it. Do you remember the scene from the first episode where Eve's in her apartment and is just completely empty and it's the most unsubtle, like, <laughs> oh, her apartment's empty because she's empty inside. She wants something yes. more in life. I don't really have a point. I just thought of that. I, I Yeah, and I think that maybe that's somewhere where it is. The idea that y you can't have both. Like, you can't... I mean, this is partly because of my unfortunate taste for, for Joss Whedon television. But many of his quote-unquote strong female characters... And this is not true for strong female characters generally, but I think that it's it's a trope that comes up with, with Whedon and also comes up with many other writers who write in this kind of sci-fi fantasy space. Where... You can either, like, you're the, the, the strong but broken girl, like River on Firefly is, like, the perfect example. Kind of the physically strong, emotionally broken young girl who needs, like, a male handler. Like, on, on Dollhouse, this is a huge thing. and Or, like, Buffy. And, well, like, I think Buffy is kind of less of an example of this because she, like mostly has most of her stuff together most of the time. Like, she definitely has, like, emotional highs and lows, but, like, I feel like she's more of a genuinely well-developed character. I would say, of, for characters on Buffy, I would name more Faith in this, or, like, Drusilla for the evil side of this, would be the characters who I see as more examples of this trope, and occasionally Buffy falls into this as well. But the fact that, you know, I can kind of rattle off all these so quickly, it, you know, kind of illustrates the scope of the issue. And I think that to some extent... Baird kind of almost sort of approaches the line. She's definitely not over the line because she's not emotionally broken by any means. But when we get like, particularly in the Christmas episode, we get all of her, her like traumatic backstory of like, oh yeah, I've seen all of these horrible wars and stuff and I haven't really dealt with any of it. I'm just kind of here and moving on. It It kind of like goes a little bit to this line, but at the same time, it, like it's okay to have strong women who have trauma so i don't want to say like that's inherently bad either i just have complicated feelings on it but yeah the thing i find interesting about that specific backstory thing you mentioned up is the kind of like the mil like i've seen war military type trauma is something that's usually reserved for male characters right like war stories tend to be male dominated Definitely. i found like i found kind of the this characterization going towards bear to be at least like marginally more interesting than the examples and i think in the same line as the tropes you were talking about earlier i feel like black widow and the avengers kind of gets a similar characterization as like a military spy type woman who's kind of powerful but like emotionally traumatized and it's kind of a similar vein of baird black widow is also an example brought to us by joss whedon yeah but Right, I've heard some things, and I don't know if any of this is true, because I don't really do the, the classic superheroes. I'm more of a, you know, cloak and dagger Jessica Jones kind of superhero person. Didn't, like, people accuse Whedon of kind of, like, ruining her character and making it all about, like, her infertility or something? Maybe this is all completely yes. wrong, I'm thinking about something else, but this is what I've heard, is that they kind of rewrote the backstory and took out all the good stuff and made it only about infertility. It's... I think it's possible to read that. The main problem with this is her characterization from Age of Ultron. Mm -hmm. So they made basically her character arc in the movie kind of revolve around like a potential romantic relationship with Bruce Banner, you know, the Hulk. Mm -hmm. And I think the vibe I got was, I don't, can't, I don't, the movie is super forgettable for the most part, so I don't remember <laughs> specifically. But she, there's like this, I think this scene where she's kind of like, oh yeah, I'm a monster like you because I can't have kids. 
Like, right, right. That's what I've heard. But she she doesn't turn into a giant green rage monster and kill thousands of innocent civilians. So like. Right, and also like it's not monstrous to not have children. Like I can understand. Like, yeah. For people who struggle with infertility and really want children, it's very difficult, and they don't want to trivialize that. And I think it's difficult for me to really reflect on this as a as a very young woman who at this point in my life is not interested in having biological children. Um, it's it's sort of impossible for me to really comprehend um, that pain and particularly the cultural pain that's layered on top of it when we have all of these cultural ideas about you're not a real woman if you can't or don't have children, which only compounds this problem for people. Yeah. And so I wonder if that was supposed to be a commentary on the like cultural yeah. the culturally induced shame of of infertility but i I don't i don't know if it was just an attempt to talk about that that fell flat or whether it was just blatantly reinforcing those same stereotypes and also something kind of revelation i had about avengers if i remember way back in the pilot we were talking about the like emotionally vulnerable character with the handler thing yes that's kind of hulk's deal with black widow Mm. very literally in that movie like hulk being the emotion very kind of obviously emotionally unstable green rage monster with black widow as his handler in this movie which people were generally not a fan of yeah the movie was like pretty forgettable yeah think of (laughs) um no it the problem the main problem is like her backstory more or less used to be just i was like a evil spy who did awful things as a spy for becoming a superhero and then they added the whole traumatic traumatic childhood plus infertility stuff which is interesting because i mean compared to i'm trying to think of a somehow bring making a point about black widow's comparison to baird so this conversation isn't completely pointless yeah i was gonna say it's probably about time to get back to the librarians but you know if you have yeah. a bow to put on the conversation go ahead now otherwise i think we'll move on i, I think Baird, I think Baird has dealt with her trauma better than Black Widow has. Probably. She seems to be coping pretty well, all things considered. So one thing I want to talk about, Sam mentioned the idea of the magic and science person being the same person as being really interesting. Because I remember previously we've praised the show generally for not staying too hung up on the there's magic? What? kind of thing that these shows can often get into and i think that's kind of best exemplified by the magic science combination enthusiast yeah i think that that's one way that it does well for sure going back to cassandra more generally do we have anything else we want to say about her and her arc i know we had a long conversation and i don't remember if this is in the episode that didn't air or one of the episodes that did where we talked at length about how oh i think this was the haunted house episode actually which did air where we talked about how it kind of seems like the writers sort of think that her powers primarily or in large part come from having a brain tumor and how we're like kind of weirded out by that. Yeah. Do you want to talk any more about that or do we feel like we've kind of gone already all the way as far as we can go with that? I don't know if it's mentioned this, but she had, they mentions in the science fair episode that she had like all these trophies from like science and math competitions that her parents like took away after she was diagnosed. So right. that would seem to imply that her skills don't come from the brain tumor, but the writers clearly think it they do. Sometimes. I think this might have been in the season finale, actually, because that's where she, in the alternate timeline, she cures the brain tumor. No, um, it was in I the think Haunted we talked about episode. it in the Haunted House episode, but it would have also been, there's lots of times when it would have been relevant. It, it was weird every time it happened we talked about it so it was it was the other piece of i guess the other element that i wanted to talk about with cassandra is how we feel about the fact that her powers are coded as somewhat supernatural in nature or at least like unexplainable and very unusual but what seems what really seems to be happening is like she has like she's a little bit autistic is kind of also how she's coded, and I always feel a little uncomfortable when autism is coded as something as being a little bit supernatural. I don't know if you guys want to talk about this, or if I should say more about that. Or... Do you want to say a bit more about it? Sure, I'll, I'll start, and then you guys can comment. Um, but this was something that I 
we, we ended up editing out, to draw the curtain back a little bit for the librarianettes, we ended up editing out a discussion because it was kind of half-baked and we didn't really know where to go with it. And we kind of wanted to let it develop fully over the course of the season before we really talked about this. But we started talking about it, I believe, from the from our second episode, the show's third episode, the Minotaur one. And I noticed it from the very jump that she's sort of coded as autistic, particularly in the... I don't know what you what we ended up deciding to call them, but the things where she kind of does her weird visualization thing, kind of the the hand gestures that she uses, the way that she repeats words, as somebody with you know personal and professional experience with autism, that was what it reminded me of. That was what the performance seemed reminiscent of to me, and it wasn't particularly like in, insensitive or upsetting to see it really honestly it's kind of cool I think Cassandra's a cool character and if they were later to be like oh yeah I was kind of always that way because I have autism I'd be like okay that's super cool and it wouldn't really like bother me or be a problem but it is a little bit weird that it's sort of treated as almost like a supernatural sort of thing when there's kind of a long cinema and tv and writing history of attributing autism specifically and pretty much anything neurological or mental health related as being magic or mystical in nature. Mental health problems in western culture have often been attributed to the supernatural, you know, like demon possession or right. evil moon influence. Right. And and not just in western cultural tradition. This is this is pretty common across many different cultural traditions and backgrounds. And it makes a lot of sense because often the cultural role of mysticism and that kind of storytelling is that it fills in the gaps that we don't understand otherwise. And all cultures have some things they understand and some things they don't. <laughs> That's been true of every culture throughout history. And so it's very common to kind of come up with explanations for things that, that are very difficult to understand. And, you know, and, and neurodiversity and, and mental health are, are very difficult to understand. And there's a lot that, even in the modern world, that no one understands about these things. So it, it makes a lot of sense, and it isn't necessarily malicious at all that these things started that way, but I think when it's continued to be reinforced in fiction today when we know better, can can be a little weird, can be a little off-putting. Some people who are more versed in the disability activism space have, have called this trope the super crip, kind of attributing disability to superpowers and mysticism and magic, and people who are smarter than me have, have talked about how, or I guess I should say more well-informed than me, have talked about how this type of trope can kind of further serve to, like, otherize disabled people or people with disabilities. And I think that Cassandra's character is definitely not the worst offender in this area, by far, but I think it does kind of skirt up against this as well. I don't know what you guys think about yeah. that. I mean, because she doesn't really have it's never explicitly stated. It's sort of hard to, and she's more just coded that way. It's harder to make explicit statements about, you know, sort of how the authors view disability. Right, but that's like very common. Go ahead, Matt. So, I think you're right that that's kind of common that characters are not explicitly labeled. I think for me, I think my difficulty for parsing through this has always been that, like, Cassandra's kind of way she interacts with their like powers like the visualizations are never super consistently characterized right it's kind of a moving target a little bit yeah because sometimes the whole hallucination thing is portrayed as kind of traumatic or difficult for her to do and sometimes she can just do it and she's fine right and there's also some level of variation to the extent to which it seems like under her conscious control it's it's just like a little bit weird. I guess it's just something to continue to watch because I feel like it's it's portrayed fairly differently in season two than season one, but I don't know for sure. Without getting into another really off-topic discussion about some other media, <laughs> um, I I, we, I mentioned this in the last discussion, but it reminds me a lot of the character from of Gary from Alphas, who is both explicitly autistic and also has similar powers, where not in in the sense that he knows a lot, but he can like communicate and read electromagnetic waves which is visualized similar ways but it's not like, his powers don't really derive from autism it's more of an uh, i disagree with my readings of alphas in general is that all like the powers and alphas all kind of were heavily linked to their drawbacks 
Yeah. And his was autism, so I'm pretty sure his because it was his visualization powers explained as a result of his neurological difference. Yeah. So I read him as being. I was going to think of him as more of the archetypal example of this type of trope. Yeah, that certainly sounds like it. That sounds like but, probably the most overt example. I don't know. It's. I mean, it's weird because I. I always read it as sort of all the character, all the super proud characters sort of have these issues that are struggling them, but they're also kind of incidental. I don't know. I mean, I guess bringing it back to the librarians. Yeah, it's kind of a chicken and the egg situation with her character, with Cassandra's character, right? How so? Like, was she like this before? Like, she got the brain tumor? Does she have somehow have, like, brain tumor-induced autism? <laughs> Which seems very strange, but... Right, that's not really how that works. But yeah. I mean, I don't know. It would be... I really wish that we could, at some point, have a, like, flashback to her as a teenager and see how they play it. I really want to see that. I mean, maybe they do, and it's in the two seasons we haven't watched. Right, that's yet, why I'm wishing so. for it. But yeah, I'm I'm making a wish right now. I'm going on the record. I wish for that. Because I would like to know what she was like before all this and get some answers as to, like, to what extent the writers like see basically what do think what do the writers think that this brain tumor is doing for her like positive and negative i want to know and also when we have like the magic thing in the alternate timeline she acts like kind of weird is she weird because she doesn't have the brain tumor anymore or because the magic the specific way it was removed made her weird as a side effect of the magic not specifically having to do with the removal of the brain tumor i don't know so i vaguely remember her alternate time like Cassandra saying that there were side effects to right but that could be side effects to not having it or side effects to the way it was removed it could go either way to my mind and also I feel like literally being a wizard would <laughs> make you act slightly differently yeah that might be some of it too and running a convent of dragon survivors right and she's treated like royalty and whatever and everything's very serious and being the librarian for what ten years? Yeah, which could have yeah. who knows what kind of effect. So it's all it's all very complicated. It didn't really affect Stone that much. No, he was pretty much the same dude. Ezekiel had some interesting responses, and let's take that as an opportunity to talk about him a little bit. So Ezekiel Jones, he probably out of everybody had the least in terms of development, but maybe that's not fair. I would say his biggest character development arc was in the same way that Stone is kind of grappling with his two separate identities, which in some ways are becoming more and more divergent from each other, Ezekiel is sort of taking on a second identity. I guess we should have talked about that when we are talking about Stone, because Stone and his dual identities is one of my favorite parts of his story, but we didn't, and now it's we're like an hour in, so we need to keep moving. Well, I, that's something I was going like, to like explain further. It is, right, and we can, we can go back. We can go back and talk about that later. But So Ezekiel taking on this new identity as a good guy, as he puts it, and being, you know, sort of switching teams in a way that nobody else really was. You know, we had Baird, who was already fighting the good fight just in a different way. We had Cassandra and Stone, who were kind of sidelined, who are now taking this on. Ezekiel's the only character who's actively kind of being a bad guy before, and is now stealing for good. What do I think about him? It's interesting, because I don't think his character changes a whole lot because i feel like he was always portrayed as like oh he's kind of a bad guy but he secretly has a heart of gold and that's right. this characterization in every episode where we talk about his character right and even early on he gives really good pep talks he gives good pep talks throughout i could use an ezekiel pep talk right now but <laughs> um i find it kind of interesting that even though he's by and large the youngest character on the show He's clearly the most self-confident. Yeah, that's that actually is interesting, and I hadn't really connected those two, but self-confidence is definitely a lot easier as you get older, so good for him. Also, can we point out that, in, I want to review again that in the alternate timeline, he started, he must have started being the librarian when he was like 10. Yes! And that the library definitely tried to recruit a 10-year-old to be the librarian. Yeah, it all seems a little bit weird. I don't I don't know how much of that is just because they like found this actor, John Kim, and were like, he's great, let's have him do it, even though it doesn't really make sense with the whole 10 years thing. Or if it was, they were, you know, intentionally trying to have him be this sort of failed child prodigy sort of character. I want to know about his backstory. I want to meet his parents. 
Yeah. Like, who yeah. who made where this are... kid? Like, where did this kid come from? <laughs> Matt did have a very good spoiler comment that does further raise questions as to what is this character's background and what is his deal. And I'm very excited to talk about it in the future. But I feel like he's a, he's somebody who has more questions than answers. And I think his character might be one of the ones where it's more interesting to leave it to the viewer to imagine what his backstory was yes. like rather than get concrete details that might disappoint you that could be true i would love to learn more about him but i i'm interested as he is i i still feel like for me the most ezekiel thing he ever said was was the green jello speech to the kid in the hospital in the fairy tale episode about how to take what you want when you want and don't let anybody tell you any different or otherwise you'll be stuck for the rest of your life eating green jello and i feel like he's somebody who very much believes and acts on that and that kind of allows him to be very flexible in sort of what kind of life he wants to live as long as he's you know looking out for himself he is happy to be a thief he's happy to be a librarian he's happy to go where the world takes him but that's really all i have for ezekiel so i want to make one comment about his name which comes from the prophet ezekiel from the jewish tradition the old testament i found this quote from the book of ezekiel that may have inspired him this is god talking to the prophet about the people of israel Mm -hmm. i will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you i will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh huh that's very interesting how did you find that did you just like google quotes from ezekiel i googled quotes from the book of ezekiel (laughs) and and on the first result this was the first one listed i mean there's also for everyone belongs to me the parent as well as the child both alike belong to me so maybe maybe that inspired this thieving aspect you know everything belongs to me (laughs) i i don't know about that that's incredibly interesting to imagine though (laughs) yeah i'm very entertained i'm glad you looked that up i'm i'm familiar with the central story of the prophet ezekiel that like some people made fun of his bald head and then he like tried to stone them to death or something and god was like don't do that or maybe god was like do that i don't remember no didn't didn't they make fun of his bald head and then they god unleashed a bear to maul the kids oh right yeah that was it that was what happened it's it's really something it's it's a strange story but yeah that's like the main story everyone knows about ezekiel but these quotes no 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 No, this is that no that was actually elijah oh okay see i thought that was ezekiel okay no this that i guess is good oh yeah it the from two kings it says from there, Elisha went up to Bethel, and as he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. <laughs> he turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, title of this episode, Get Out of Here, Baldy. No. <laughs> disagree hard disagree okay so that's interesting i do like the idea i like to imagine that the writers thought of the name ezekiel jones for this thief looked up the quotes saw the first page and were inspired by the whole heart of heart of stone heart of flesh thing which is fascinating i i have wondered a little bit if there's supposed to be anything in jacob stone's last name but i feel like we're gonna get more on that later too so i just wanted to leave it for now but okay, anything else about the four characters we've talked about so far? I think we could do like a speed round where everybody can make a quick comment about Jenkins, Duloc, and Lamia. Let's start with Jenkins. AKA Galahad. Yes, AKA Galahad. So it's cool that we have somebody on our team who's an Arthurian knight that never really gets brought up again, not to spoil anything, but he's kind of just like their helper who hangs out at the annex. And I think he kind of wants to move past his knight past. Right, so. right. He doesn't really bring it up too much. He just kind of is there, being immortal, chilling out. He's a bit of a meanie. He can be, but he's kind of warmed up a little bit. He's sort of more pragmatic than other people. Like, we saw that in the high school episode, the STEM fair, where he was like, oh, you should have let them all die. He's very utilitarian. Yes. Whereas Baird was not as utilitarian in this particular episode which is interesting i don't know if there's anything to make up the name jenkins which he chose i don't know if it's just supposed to be like the most supercilious like stereotypical kind of name for this sort of a character i don't know did anybody take anything from that or have other things to say about him i assume he's not a fan of java as in the coding language 
there's a like thing there's a software thing written in java called jenkins but i assume that's mostly you you too you too just googled jenkins to see if there's anything yelping oh my goodness i i think we can assume it's not a reference to leroy jenkins comma leroy very unlikely I think it was just sort of meant to be a really average name for somebody who was given, you know, a real clunker like Galahad from before. I don't have a ton else to say about him. Why don't we talk about Duloc? He's cool. He's evil. He's gone. Dead? Question mark? Maybe just gone. I really wish we'd seen more of him in the late season. Yeah. Because there's a lot of buildup and then he just went away for a while and then it was the end of the season. So I was kind of sad that for the very last scene, his like epic fight... They bring in a new actor to play Duloc in his young Lancelot form. Right, and it's weird because, one, they don't do that for Jenkins, and two, like, it's his death scene. Like, this is a big deal. And we just see, yeah. like, a quick flash so that we understand that it's supposed to be the same person as he's dying, and then that's just it. And Matt Frewer is always great, so yes. it's a missed opportunity. For sure. It's, it's all, it was a little weird. Not nearly as devastating as Lamia being killed off for no reason. Literally no reason. I'm still mad. I'm still mad. I'm still mad that she apparently loved Duloc. We already, like, beat this one into the ground last but week. But yeah. we should beat it every single chance we get. I guess we should. It was just really weird. I don't know in what sense she loved Duloc and why it was never foreshadowed at all. Yeah. And it took, and she was literally on screen for, like, five seconds for her to die. Yeah. Even though, like, they have this whole arc about, you know, maybe she's good deep down inside. Right, and then, like, there's no deliverance on that at all. Like, imagine how great the next season of it would be if she just joined the librarians, right? God, be so you cool. know, come to the good side. Given that that was what foresh- was foreshadowed was going to happen. Right, like, what if there'd been, like, some whole thing where they're able to defeat Duloc in part because, like, somebody... I don't even know which character would it would be best to have do it. Maybe Ezekiel even, but I don't know if we would necessarily want to give him that role. But, yeah. like, somebody believes in her still, despite, you know, everything that she's done. Like, because I feel like Ezekiel can really look past other people's behavior and can look past, oh, we've been on opposite sides, in the like, before. It doesn't really, like, phase him the way it probably would everybody else. Maybe Cassandra, because she can be like, oh, I too have faced the dark side or whatever. But really anybody, you know, could have some kind of arc of learning to basically extend an olive branch to somebody, and that would have been really cool. I feel like she would have been a good, like, cast member for season two as well. So, we miss you, Lamia. They you could were have great. Even brought in alternate timeline Lamia. Yeah. Who's, like, already a good <laughs> person. I would have been into alternate timeline Lamia. Right. She was cool. I feel like it would be weird to have any of the alternate timeline characters around, though, because they have these whole deep relationships with other people who don't necessarily have those relationships with them like the whole thing with stone being like really into baird but baird is just like i don't really know you that well we only met a couple months ago and we're not dating i feel like it would be kind of weird with lamia too you know what i would want though a like an episode revolving around like some members of team ezekiel just randomly showing up in the main timeline and being real confused that could be good i'd be into it if we're doing the whole name things lamia is a reference to a Woman slash monster from Greek mythology. Yeah. Eats children. Slept with Zeus. Oh, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Saying slept with Zeus implies that it's consensual, which is probably not the case. Well, that's grim. But in any case, she was a very cool character. She was a complicated character. She was awesome. And I'm sorry that she got stabbed in the back and is dead now. So I think that ties up our character analysis. So that was kind of what I wanted to take us through. So Sam, why don't you take us away so i wanted to know what we all thought of the show's treatment of the mythology and you know legends and myths that the show like episodes are often based on as something of a novice in this area i generally liked it it was interesting and fairly compelling and they mostly drew on myths that were well known enough to the average like semi-educated viewer that i could pretty much follow what was going on it was hitting on cultural touchstones that were familiar to me it was it's always a little bit weird considering that there are effectively infinite myths that you could draw on uh, across culture and across time and it's usually like you know the european ones that we hear the most so I always feel a little weird about that. 
But I think in terms of how they're treated and how they're integrated into the story of the episode, it's generally pretty good. I feel like we talked about this on the Apple Discord episode, but the one that stands out to me is one part of mythology that they didn't really do great on is the Eastern, quote-unquote, Eastern dragons in that episode. Which is like, unless, unless I'm missing something, the show's only real main attempt at engaging mythology outside of what would be normally comfortable or familiar to a Western audience. Yeah, I think that's true. As far as that, I'm not convinced people would, what the Western audience would particularly be surprised at the idea of quote-unquote Eastern dragons. Right. And this this one is also touched on again in season two. Not Eastern dragons specifically that I recall, but there is a non-Western mythology that is explored, at least a little bit. There's something to be said about sticking to what you believe you can accurately portray. Yeah, you don't want to be inclusive and be wrong. That's never good. Yeah. But at the same time, they could have tried a little bit harder. They could have. I mean, there's obviously good material out there for, like, the basis. I mean, the one that comes to mind is I think Sun Wukong would make a great, like, villain or, you know, episode premise. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a bit overused. Oh, it's the dude from League of Legends. But, like, also, like, a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. But it's also because he's so culturally significant. Yes. Or just, like, anything from his story would be, yeah, like, good episode of the week type villains. That's kind of how the book is written. Yeah. So it's interesting, I think, how they, their approach to sort of adapting the myths to like a modern portrayal you know sort of contrasting it with something like buffy or any really any urban fantasy sort of thing right right like magic and the modern play more easily in this show than they do typically as opposed to like where in percy jackson where there's like all this greek mythology stuff but there's like a magical force that keeps it hidden from people called the mist and wherein the librarians is really willful ignorance for the most part, keeps people from knowing about magic. Yeah. I was also thinking more sort of the way it interfaces so easily with the modern. Like, when Cassandra gets the yeah. Apple of Discord, she goes to melt down a power plant, and there's no particular weirdness that happens from a power plant being in close proximity to this ancient, you know, Greek thing. They can kind of just play off each other easily. It's not like she goes sails to sail off to conquer right. Troy. It's just very much integrated into the modern world. Weirdly, my recollection of, like, Rick Riordan stuff is, like, Percy Jackson-style stuff is pretty vague. I, I feel like it was, some, like, sometimes it was kind of closer to what the librarians was doing. Right, wasn't there that casino that was the Lotus Eaters casino? Yeah. It was more of a casino in the movie. It was more, I got the more impression it was kind of like a hotel in the books. Which I think, which I think, is a good example of an adaptation of something from the Odyssey, from the Lotus Eaters from the Odyssey, which I just finished reading for college. Aren't you cool? I am. Thanks for pointing out. But like, I think that I, I whether or not you liked the movie, I thought the movie was. I didn't like the movie, but I also didn't read the book. But I, I really didn't like the movie. I thought it was really bad. No one liked the movie. It was really bad. It was really a disappointment. But I did yeah. really love the idea of Lotus Eaters as a casino. And that actually wasn't an original idea. There's something very much like that that happens in Angel many years before the movie came out that that worked pretty well. But it was much more explicit in the Percy Jackson Lightning Thief movie. And that, that part quite worked for me. Unlike the rest of the dumpster fire. But I, in Percy Jackson, for the most part, there's more of a separate, like a very, there's a wall of mist separating the supernatural from the natural. Right, and they can only go off and be half-gods in this weird camp where there's not really any technology and everything's all, like, yeah. weird and rustic looking. Yeah. Yeah. I did think that was interesting. I'm just, like, in the mythological vein, are there any specific things that we would like to point out as being adapted really well? I'm trying to decide. See, I'm thinking about the Minotaur episode right now. Beyond the physical right, appearance, I think the, of the, the, the myth, Minotaur, the use of the myth was quite good. It, it's interesting because 
I think the whole sacrificing people for the Minotaur is something that gets left out of a lot of conceptions of the Minotaur mm-hmm. myth. Yeah, and it's interesting how they work around some of the stuff from the original myth to adapt it to their needs. For example, substituting virgins with interns and the whole control center stuff. Right, I thought those were good adaptions, though. I thought that, I thought they worked well within the context of the show. And they didn't, like, break the myth's, like, power. Like, it didn't end up going sort of against what the original story was about. I think some adaptations can result in a story that kind of says the opposite or, like, actively is sort of working against itself and what it's trying to say. But I think that those adaptations kept it going pretty well. Other than how they kind of rely on, rather than, like, the original stories, some of the more pop culture interpretations of some of the myths, like Minotaurs being a species, which I ranted yeah, about. the Apple of Discord being an actual magical artifact rather than a psychological ploy. Yeah. Which I think is fine, because yes, there's the original story, but there's also what it's come to mean to the modern American audience, which, you know, we can be purists and say, blue, blue, it shouldn't have ever been that way, but the fact of the matter is, it is that way. Which is who I am, a blue, blue, <laughs> Yes, blue. exactly, but that's not at all who I am, so I am delighted by it all. So write in, librarian, it's Team Sam or Team Arya. At least they don't wouldn't have to explain where they got a new Minotaur, the Minotaur being an immortal. Mm-hmm. Though maybe they could argue, like, oh, we'd, I think a weird, interesting way to take it would be, like, oh, we actually, like, genetically engineered a Minotaur, which is disturbing on right, its own Right, and you level. could talk about genetic engineering more broadly, because their Golden Axe is clearly a standard for Monsanto. So you could definitely yeah. talk about how genetic engineering, for all its benefits, and all the wonderful things that it is, you know, it, it can do to help eliminate food insecurity worldwide, it also, you know, when held in the hands of large corporations can be, you know, very detrimental to the economic development of developing nations, where subsistence far- subsistence farming is more common, and how it can basically result in, like, modern-day serfdom, and then also the, like, the ecological problems that can result from, like, very unchecked development and all that kind of thing. Maybe our resident environmental scientist would like something to say about that. I mean, I feel like Arya did a good job of going over her most of the controversies in genetic engineering in large mega corporations. I think it's not as it'd be far too off topic to to get into the nitty gritty details. Um, yeah, I will yeah. say I was very proud to be able to say all these things because I had to do the con side of a debate pro or against genetic engineering in high school. And, you know, it's it's pretty hard because all everybody else, all the other classes had to do this activity, and everybody else was kind of just like, well, it's bad because it's not natural. And we're like, it's bad because it's destroying the livelihoods of small farmers. And everyone's like, okay, I guess you won. <laughs> Why don't you do a quick Doctor Who thing? Okay, so basically the first episode reminded me of the sort of structure of a Doctor Who, Who episode. And in general, the formula is very similar. We have this magical, kind of bigger on the inside annex that teleports the characters to wherever they're needed to help people, which is functions like the TARDIS, and they interact with the new setting and cast of characters each time to deal with some kind of alien for Doctor Who, supernatural for the librarian's threat. Most, But notably, the character that seemed most similar to the Doctor, Flynn Carson, is absent for most of the season. It is interesting, and there's a lot of parallels. I think there's a lot of common ground between many of these types of shows, like the Monster of the Week format is very reminiscent of Buffy, and a lot of yeah. the team dynamic stuff is also very reminiscent of Buffy. I, it does now occur to me that we didn't talk about Flynn Carson and his character development, and I'm fine with it. <laughs> uh, what character development? I mean, I feel like he has, he has a lot of... It's kind of hard to talk about his character without having watched all the views, which I would add relevant context. We don't really know him the same way we know these other characters. Alright, so Matt, did you want to do your thing? So, one thing I kind of meant to talk about and then kind of forgot to do it in the Santa Claus episode, but I think applies to the show more generally, is this kind of the idea of the librarians as a TV show as being an example of family-friendly mm-hmm. comedy. But it's definitely easy to characterize as a family-friendly show. There's not a whole lot of... It's not super violent or swearing or right nobody's allowed to kill anybody except very rarely the villains and only in series finales and then they're even only allowed to kill bad characters like the only character who definitely kills another character is when duloc stabs lamia and this is kind of a show that i think his reputation as being family friendly there's an interview about like from noah wiley that kind of talks about this which kind of inspired me to talk about it but like internal data from 
TNT suggested when they started making the show that was popular across all like a lot of age demographics. And I think that's kind of as someone who thinks a lot about comedy, people, com- comedians, people who try to be funny struggle a lot with being family friendly, or at least there's a big debate with trying to go as far, I guess, edgy as possible. I guess would be the right word. Well, a lot of stuff that's not family friendly is really funny. Like, swearing is basically inherently comedic. Talk about, like, sex and relationships is inherently fairly comedic. But to me, I feel like for a lot, for like a show, for people who like shows like South Park, and to a lesser extent, like Rick and Morty, I have a hard time imagining of comedy without those elements. And that's one thing that I like a lot about The Librarians. Is that like the Santa Claus episode is I think a really good example. It's hysterically of this, funny almost all the way through. Of how you can be, like incredibly funny, to for like the, in a way that both kids and adults all ages can appreciate, which is not common for live action TV. And that's something I think urban fantasy can do well is that it uses the fantastical aspects to put relatable like modern characters into situations that parallel sort of modern situations, but are funny because of the fantastical and unusual elements right you can put a you can put a like the magic hat on ezekiel yeah and then have him running around uh seeing deck the halls and we can have you know nicholas the wonder maker showing up and putting toys in baird's shoes and we can have the hilarious costume gags in the fairy tale episode where everybody's costume just keeps getting a little bit more ridiculous i I feel like there's a lot of really good examples of truly hilariously funny things that were very like quote-unquote clean jokes that could be repeated elsewhere and i think it you know, i think you're right matt that it does a good job of being sort of an exemplar in that area we're definitely very much on page with the people who created the yes. show that's a big part of the appeal to yeah. us at least and was the intent and, and it's nice to watch something that isn't trying to be edgy or cynical yeah, because it takes on some fairly heavy stuff sometimes, but it doesn't necessarily do so in a like overtly dark or, I guess, pretentious kind of way. Like, it can talk about some fairly difficult things. Like, it addresses, you know, characters' mortality rather a lot. With, like, in the Tesla episode, there's the, you know, Tesla ghosts and their death issues, and there's, you know, Cassandra is dying throughout the show. Or at least so far, she's been dying. Flynn almost dies and has to come to terms with the fact that he's dying and how is he how is he going to spend his last day? You know, there's there's a, a fairly you know heavy undercurrent of death and also of like rejection and mispotential and Stone's story and what he talks about. Like there's there's a lot of heavy stuff, but it's not dealt with in a way that just is consistently tonally sad. I think one thing I think in that direction is when shows when like quote unquote family friendly shows tend to deal with these issues they tend to get accused of being really heavily moralizing mm-hmm. that they just like at the end of the episode just tell you how you should feel about this issue which is something that the librarian doesn't really do often. i think it does a good job of avoiding that yeah the main the only character who really moralizes at all is santa claus but it's so it's great to be comedic. it's just full of hope and joy and just love it so much yeah bruce campbell i i, I need a like encouragement speech from Bruce Campbell pretending to be Santa Claus. I think we all do in this time. I think I wanted to ask everybody, I guess, two questions, and I haven't decided yet which order I want to ask them in. One of them is, what's your favorite part of the whole thing? I don't think we need to do least favorite parts, because we've done, we've talked plenty about what we don't like, but like, what's your favorite part? What stands to recommend the show out of the whole thing so far? And then my other question is, if I asked you as a show, what's the librarians about? What would you tell me? Let's start with what's it's about. So if I had to answer that question, I would say The Librarians is about difference and self-acceptance because all of the characters are working on figuring out who they are. They're all struggling with identity stories and how to reconcile different pieces of their identity with who they are, what they do, and how they relate to others. And that's everybody, including Jenkins, including Baird, Cassandra, Ezekiel, Stone, like all of them are going through some kind of identity story. And I like that in a time where difference is sort of on everybody's mind and it's one of the main 
storytelling tropes, difference is good, difference is bad. The librarians kind of sidesteps it all and says, like, difference is hard, it's isolating. Like, that whole speech that is reflected, you know, bookends the beginning and the end of the, the season, you know, about a life of mystery of misery, loneliness and adventure, you know, a chance to make the difference and save the world twice before Friday, kind of drives home that element of to be different and to be exceptional for all the good and bad of it is just really hard and really isolating in the way that going through exceptional life experiences with others is impactful. So that's what I think this show's about. I would say it's about how people relate to each other and the world around them, in a sense that I think a lot of the, what the show's driven by is how the main characters kind of interact with each other and how do, how they relate to and deal with problems. And of what kind of approaches we take to the problems we encounter and the people we encounter how do we deal different and kind of like what you were saying how do we deal with differently with different people both on our team and the ones we encounter out in the world i like that i was gonna say it's about people solving problems together both strange and familiar i like yours that's very concise all right so what's your favorite part do we have to go more specific than the characters you don't have to because for me it's not necessarily the path that the characters take that i like so much it's more of the characters as they're described are intriguing what do you mean the characters as they're described kind of ezekiel is a character that doesn't necessarily change that much throughout the show but his character kind of as it's portrayed in the show is one that's very interesting to me and makes me want to watch more of the librarians i think that's every character yeah I would watch entire show about just yeah, them. Definitely. Wasn't the whole finale supposed to show us why <laughs> having just one of them wasn't a good idea and that they needed to work together to be their best possible selves? You missed the whole point of the <laughs> fan fiction section where we fantasize about <laughs> them being different, having their own shows. Yeah, I think it, it goes without saying that we clearly think that these would all be good standalone, uh, good standalone characters and good standalone shows. So that's my favorite thing. Okay, I think my favorite part, and I'm kind of being boring because I've said this before, but my favorite part is the boundless enthusiasm the characters have for what they do and the things that, just the world around them. I really love seeing adult characters who have that sort of deep and abiding sense of wonder and excitement about the world. Wow, you do pick really good favorite things let me think of something equally <laughs> as meaningful and poignant or you can go for something much less i know what my okay, favorite thing it. is the fursuit oh my god get <laughs> off the podcast we're voting you off the <laughs> no come up with something real to be your favorite part on a more serious note i liked that it's kind of like what you said aria but that you can have an atmosphere of positivity without feeling the need to undercut it to be cool and that like enthusiasm and positivity and like having fun more so than anything else is treated as something both good and adult yeah i think the fact that the show doesn't try to be cool really works in its favor because i think if it tried it would not work I think there's later episodes that are the epitome of not trying to be cool. <laughs> well, we'll find out when we get there. But regardless, I think that's a good place to end it for this week. That's it for this week. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at in the Podcast of Wisdom or send us an email at in the Podcast of Wisdom at gmail.com. You can find us on the web at in the Podcast of or lead us a rating or review on iTunes to help others find the show. Our theme music was written by Matt Kavner-Johnson, and our cover image was designed by Gabe Valentine. Thanks, and we'll be back next week. Nope, we'll be back in... be back in two to three weeks. Thanks, and we'll be back at some point in the future that is indeterminate two at to this three moment. Weeks. Bye, everyone. <laughs>